Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened this week in Ohio, uh, where a uh, a referendum on a uh, on a procedural uh, change to the Constitution gave conservatives some um, some dire thoughts about what's going to happen in November and maybe what's going to happen in 2024. Michael New joins us to tell us all to take a deep breath, man, and just <laughs> relax. Michael New is, of course, assistant professor of practice at the Catholic University of America and senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, as well as a contributor to National Review Online, where he had actually a pretty good analysis of this up on Wednesday. Michael, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Yeah, you know, um, look, I mean, I'm, I, I wasn't going to commit seppuku when I saw what happened in Ohio um, on Tuesday. But um, I, I mean, this is worrisome, right? I mean, it does seem that this, uh, first off, I guess you should probably explain what this ballot initiative was, and mm. why it has um, pro-life activists in Ohio and elsewhere a little concerned. Sure. Uh, just taking a step back. I mean, yesterday, uh, voters in Ohio had the chance to vote on something called Issue 1. And what Issue 1 would do, kind of its main component, was it would kind of set a higher threshold to amend the Ohio State Constitution. Right now, the Constitution can be amended with 50% plus one of the popular vote. This would raise the threshold, or Issue 1 would have raised the threshold to 60%. And you know, this just makes sense. I mean, constitutions are important. They're durable. They're right. hard to change. So if you're going to change the Constitution, I think a lot of us would agree it should require you know, a pretty high threshold. It should require you know, a broad consensus. You know, the U.S. Constitution is very hard to change. It's only been amended you know, some 27 times in the past 200 plus years. So this was you know, a perfectly kind of you know, reasonable thing for uh, not only just conservatives and pro-lifers, but you know, everyone. Uh, this was of particular interest to people in the pro-life movement and the pro-life community, uh, because in November, uh, there's going to be a petition on the ballot, a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would place abortion rights in Ohio's state constitution. And essentially, it becomes much harder for our opponents to get 60% of the vote than 50% plus one. So that really did motivate a lot of the uh, support for issue one, that we really wanted to make it harder for opponents to amend the constitution to put abortion rights in the state constitution. And what you know our opponents want is, frankly, you know, pretty radical. You know, if this abortion amendment comes through, you know, it very likely is going to require or mandate you know, abortion be legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. It's going to jeopardize the pro-life parental involvement law in Ohio. Uh, it also will probably likely require the Ohio State Medicaid program to start covering abortions. Uh, that's going to require taxpayer funding of elective abortions for Ohio residents. So essentially, uh, we wanted to stop this. And again, we were hoping that issue one would pass. Unfortunately, it did not. Uh, it got about 43% of the vote, uh, short of the 50% it needed. So uh, it did not pass. And, uh, you know, today is another day. You know, the status quo prevails. And as I said in my blog post, it was a disappointment and it was a setback. We shouldn't despair. So it's a setback, though. I mean, I think everybody else, I mean, I think that that's at least accurate. It's a setback. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that when you're amending constitutions, it's different than passing statutory law. It's even different than doing referendums that create statutory law. I mean, that you can say, well, look, you know, it's, you know, majority rules on those things, but constitutions are, are more foundational. Right, and, absolutely. 
and certainly with with our federal constitution, it's been made. Uh, I wouldn't say extremely difficult, but somewhat difficult to amend the federal constitution. Uh, we've certainly done it in the past. We've done it most recently, I think, 30 years ago, I think was the last time mm -hmm. we amended the constitution, um, by having supermajorities in both chambers of Congress pass the issue to the states or to have an Article 5 convention pass it to the states, then requiring a three-quarters um, majority of the states to ratify it in order for it to become an official amendment. And what that does is it makes sure that you're not putting... Um, the whims of the moment, enshrining the whims of the moment into your foundational document. When, when you have that sort of agreement where you can have 60% or two thirds, I mean, 60% is still a pretty big threshold right now. And in, in the way that, uh, you know, in our current political climate, I mean, then you're, you know, you're talking about something that has broad consensus that everybody can really agree on foundationally. You know, abortion clearly isn't one of those issues. And so, right. uh, yeah. I mean, right, especially with 60%, you're, it's going to be bipartisan. It's just one party just can't ram a constitutional amendment through that the other party hates. You have to at least have some kind of bipartisan support for anything to reach that 60% threshold. And again, you know, it's one thing to pass a law or a statute that can be easily amended or repealed, but a constitution is going to be pretty permanent. So when you're talking about making a permanent change to your governing document, you have that should require a pretty, pretty broad consensus. Well, and I would think that under normal circumstances, or maybe maybe if it wasn't a um, if there wasn't a a pending divisive issue on the table, that that so that that was something that would have normally passed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I kind of get that impression. Now we do have a divisive issue: abortion. We've been talking about this. Well, it's also uh, it's also you know a summer election, right? Mm -hmm. So the skeptic in me is saying it's a summer election and off year, right? Because Ohio's not New Jersey or Virginia or what's the other one? I think it's Missouri that has uh, has off year state you know constitutional office elections, uh, or I think it's Mississippi. Excuse me, I think it's Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And um, so Ohio doesn't do that. So you know if you're doing these types of referendums or or ballot initiatives in an off year in the summertime rather than November, uh, I'm always skeptical that you can read too much into that, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I was concerned, but not necessarily panicking at the outcome of this. This is a type of election. I mean, certainly normally scheduled, but it's a type of election where grassroots turnout probably has a lot greater impact than it does when you get to a normal November cycle, and especially a normal cycle in, uh, you know, in a, a full election year where you're going to have just more turnout uh, because it's just uh, it's just more establishment turnout. People know that they're, they're expected to cast ballots at those times. Uh, how much do you read into that? I mean, how much participation was there in this election? I mean, the turnout was higher than expected for special elections. I mean, usually off-year elections don't see much in the way of turnout. You know, usually um, you know, summer elections you know, don't see much in the way of turnout, at least low turnout rates. Uh, I mean, I think the turnout was higher than expected. I don't really have the final data from the Ohio Secretary of State's office. But again, I do think the fact that, you know, abortion was a key issue in this campaign and both, you know, pro-life groups, 
and groups to support legal abortion were motivated and energized. You know, I think that and the thing also got lots of coverage both locally and even nationally. I mean, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post running stories about this election. You know, turnout was you know high for a kind of a summer special election. So, uh, but then again, it probably was still lower than what you'd expect for a, a midterm election. Certainly lower than for a presidential election. So again, you know, I'm concerned, as we'll probably talk about later. I'm not panicking. I still think there is a, a pathway to victory for pro-lifers in November. We are we are going to get to that because you have a really interesting analysis, and I'm not sure I completely buy it, but it's very interesting and it's at least something that we need to be considering, right? Some of the things that you raised. But before we get there, yes, I and I saw on Tuesday, you know, there was anecdotal reports of much longer lines in urban centers than what mm -hmm. was expected. And, and I said at the time, well, if, if that's where you're getting turnout, it's not looking good. And it turned out that that mm -hmm. was correct. On the other hand, still 43%, right? Mm -hmm. um, so clearly you're getting turnout in other places. Um, but it does raise a question because it's, and this is something that's come up since the midterms last year when after Dobbs, the issue of abortion really prior to Dobbs was, I don't want to say academic, ac academic may be a little too strong a term for it, but basically there weren't a lot of stakes in most of the abortion debates in terms of electoral politics, right? Because as long as Roe and Casey were in place, mm -hmm. individual politicians really couldn't do a hell of a lot. Of yeah. it. They could fulminate about it. It was more of a partisan marker, right? A cultural marker. Um, after Dobbs, though, the, these questions are now acute, and Republicans think that that was part of what happened in, in the midterms, was that abortion turned out to be a much stronger um, incentive for Democrats and, and abortion rights moderates to come out and vote, um, and the Republicans didn't have an answer for it then. Is this more of that? I mean, is this more evidence that that's the case? And this is going to be just a, a significant headwind for Republicans now for the next few election cycles. I mean, I think there are some states and some districts where it may well hurt Republicans. Uh, but I mean, one thing I'd also say for the 2022 elections, pro-life governors who signed strong pro-life laws, they did very well. And yeah. many faced you know, well-financed opponents. I mean, uh, you know, Greg Abbott of Texas won by a large margin. You know, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, won by a large margin. Uh, in Ohio, uh, you know, Mike DeWine won by a large margin. So, I mean, there were pro-life governors. I'm sorry? DeSantis had, had, um, DeSantis had actually signed abortion legislation, won by 19 points in Florida. I mean, you know. Absolutely. So, you know, right, so I mean, yeah. the governors who did sign laws, you know, certainly weren't punished and in many cases won by, you know, pretty substantial margins. Um, you know, again, when, what we see from the data, at least the data I've seen, is that, you know, I don't think public opinion has changed that dramatically on this issue. But the other side is more amped up and more motivated. And people who support legal abortion are now more likely to support candidates who support legal abortion. We're not getting like crossover voters you know, the way we sometimes did. So I right. think the other side certainly is more motivated um, than they used to be. Um, and again, there are certain circumstances and certain races where it probably has hurt Republicans and has hurt pro-lifers. Uh, but I don't necessarily think it's, it's a losing issue across the board. I think that when you make a strong argument in favor of the pro-life position, people are often very receptive. So I just think that, you know, the ostrich strategy of sticking your head in the sand doesn't work. I, you know, I think we have good arguments. I just think we need to make those arguments and make them in a compelling, convincing way. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the ostrich strategy because honestly, and, you know, and I'm biased because I'm 
very much opposed to abortion. And I, I actually am very happy that these new restrictions are, are rolling in. Now, my political analyst side of me says, neither party is really finding the middle on this yet. But, you know, as, as somebody who just hates abortion and thinks it's the killing of human life, I'm happy to have those things restricted and um, think it's worth a, a couple of losses uh, to have uh, to, to save those lives. Um, but putting my political analyst hat back on, one of the things that I saw was that Republicans hadn't prepared themselves very well for Dobbs. I don't know why, because frankly, they had about a four week run up to it between the leak and the actual, well, five weeks, I think, between the leak and the actual release of the opinion. But they seem to come, come out of the gate kind of shooting the moon for you know restrictions and talking about all these different laws they were going to pass, realizing that they were kind of spooking the electorate. And then they just shut down and didn't want to talk about it at all and left, it, left the field open for Democrats to completely frame that particular issue in the election. And my impression in Ohio is that that wasn't the case in Ohio. But mm -hmm. I think that that's still a problem that Republicans are not articulating um, compelling arguments in some cases. I don't know about Ohio, because like you said, Mike DeWine did really well in Ohio. But, mm -hmm. uh, but I think that that's part of the problem. They're leaving a, they're leaving a vacuum there. Uh, I, I just ask you, do you, did you see that as an issue in Ohio uh, in, this, in this election? Or do you think that they made a pretty good showing of, of making the argument. Um, cool things. First, I wouldn't even argue Republicans have more than just four weeks. Republicans kind of knew when Amy Coney Barrett, you know, was on the Supreme Court, there's a good chance that Roe v. Wade was going to, you know, be overturned. They also knew with the oral arguments in early December, they went well for us, you know, in the Dobbs case. I mean, yep. it wasn't a sure thing the Roe would be overturned, but those of us who, you know, read the transcript and saw what happened, knew that, you know, it was probably gonna be a pretty good decision for pro-lifers that day in June, which it was. So Republicans had plenty of time prepared. And I think that, you know, out of the gate, you know, preparation was lacking. You know, I don't think there was any kind of a coherent strategy, either at the federal level or at the state level. It was all very kind of, you know, scattershot. And, you know, it was kind of okay in very conservative states. You know, they had trigger laws in place or they could pass laws right away. I mean, certainly elected officials in Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, you know, they're doing just well, happily passing pro-life laws and protecting pre-born children. But in more kind of moderate states, uh, you know, places like Ohio, places like Michigan, you know, a better, more coherent strategy would have been helpful. And, uh, you know, I think you know, we've learned, you know, some things from these direct democracy campaigns. You know, I think that, you know, the Ohio campaign was a little bit complicated because even though, you know, it was about abortion, it wasn't just about abortion. It was about a procedural threshold and there were groups, you know, not necessarily interested in the sanctity of life issues that were involving themselves in this campaign. So, again, it was, um, you know, a good idea, I think, just, you know, requiring that constitutional amendments, you know, have a larger consensus to, you know, be enacted. Uh, I do think that, you know, pro-lifers seemed organized and were, you know, running ads and were on the ground. And they did have a rally that last weekend with, um, you know, Abby Johnson and Bishop Strickland and Jim Caviezel. So it seemed that, you know, there was an organized campaign. Um, you know, again, I don't like to read you know too much into the results of you know any one election. Um, you know, again, this was partly about abortion, but not entirely about it. Um, you know, the good news is tomorrow is another day. And again, I do think there's a pathway to victory for Ohio pro-lifers in, in November. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, this is and this was the point that you were raising at National mm -hmm. Review. 
uh, you're arguing here that um, that time is kind of on our side. Uh, that, that this is this is one th this is sort of like a an opening battle not the war and that right. time is on our side so explain what you're thinking about that and how you how you see uh this progressing as we get down to it's there's another and there's another vote coming up in november right on this right that the actual vote on the amendment to place abortion in the ohio state constitution will take place in november and one thing I'm just encouraging people is don't give up. You know, there is, I think, a pathway to victory. It's not going to be easy, but it's not impossible. And this is kind of my, my reasoning that right now, polling on the abortion amendment shows it's polling anywhere from 54% to 57%, which is, of course, a majority. But one thing I'll say is that polls taken months before the election are really not always good predictors of what happens on election day, especially with ballot proposals. There's a good body of research showing that ballot proposals tend to lose support as election day draws near. And there's at least two good examples I can think of. First is Michigan. You know, they had on the ballot, you know, Proposition 3 or Proposal 3 in 2022. Opposition to Proposal 3 was in the mid-20s in September. Uh, it turns out on election day, over 43% of Michigan voters, again, over 43% voted against Proposition 3. Now, that wasn't the win we wanted. We did gain about you know, 16, 17, 18% of the polls in about a month and a half. If we make a similar gain in Ohio, that puts us within striking distance of victory. I think an even better example is Massachusetts. 2012, there was a ballot proposition in the Bay State to legalize assisted suicide. Everyone thought it would be a big slam dunk. Uh, opponents you know, didn't seem well organized. Opponents didn't seem well funded. You know, Pro-lifers in blue states um, you know, just sometimes uh, you know, have trouble with just you know, fundraising and organization. And our opposition to this you know, suicide measure was pulling around in the mid-20s in like mm -hmm. August. In November, the pro-life team won. We got 51% of the vote and beat assisted suicide in Massachusetts. So if we can win and make up 25-plus points in dark blue Massachusetts, yeah, I think we can make up some ground in Ohio. I mean, it's not going to be easy. You know, I think we're going to have to spend money. We're going to have to raise money. I think a grassroots effort is going to be crucial. You just can't fight this behind your desk. People need to be out there knocking on doors, pestering friends and neighbors to go out and vote. I mean, this is going to require a full court press, but I don't think it's impossible. And again, I think it's worth it. I think if, you know, we lose Ohio, the other side is going to start doing these propositions in places like Arizona, Florida, Missouri. And um, yeah, again, that's just going to encourage and enable our opponents. I think winning Ohio is going to get national ramifications. Well, I also think you're, it's going to be helped in another regard too, right? Because as you said earlier, and you intimated this earlier, so it's not as though you haven't addressed this, but the fight this week was about constitutional process, right? Mm -hmm. It was a proxy fight for this, for what's coming up in November. It's clearly a proxy fight, right? Mm -hmm. That was, that was clear, but there's a lot of stuff that went into that. I mm -hmm. think when you get to the Ohio ballot and, and the, the, the question in the November Ohio ballot, it says, is, should abortion be a constitutional right, regardless of how it's framed? That makes the issue, I think, less procedural and more definitional than what we had this week. And, and again, Ohio is not Massachusetts. Ohio is not even Michigan, really. I mean, Ohio is redder than Michigan is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I have a sneaking suspicion that 
maybe they didn't want to maybe some ohioans who don't want abortion just simply didn't want to monkey around with the constitutional process as an mm -hmm. end run around this but are simply not going to turn out and vote to put abortion um in, in the state constitution as a constitutional right which would put it somewhat beyond any sort of control whatsoever and i don't know how it's written you probably have a better mm -hmm. grip on how it's written for the november ballot but if it's written the way that democrats keep wanting to sell this starting in you know in may of last year when dobbs was handed down you know they're selling this as th there's no such thing as a legitimate restriction on abortion I don't know a Democratic politician that's actually put forward legislation on this that has agreed to put any sort of restriction on abortion. And if that's the way that this thing reads, I think there's going to be a lot of people that say, hey, look, dude, it's one thing to say, you know, monkey around with the constitutional amendment process. Maybe we don't want to do that, but we also don't want to lose some input on how this, you know, public policy is going to be uh implemented so i think that there's some room there to argue that as well is that uh, you know it's it, it that type of constitutional amendment will make it almost impossible to put any sort of restrictions on it whether that be um you know restrictions on parental notification whether that be restrictions based on you know the term of gestation any of that um and i think that might be something that is that wasn't a factor this week but will be when the question becomes acute in November. Yes, certainly. And I think that, you know, certainly pro-lifers, I think, are going to make some very strong arguments against this constitutional amendment. I mean, you know, we had a proxy fight, but the campaign about this amendment, in my opinion, has not really begun in earnest just yet. And I think that, again, very likely this amendment would effectively legalize abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy and put that in the Constitution. You know, that's unpopular. Second, third trimester abortions don't pull well, and they certainly don't pull well in Ohio. I think this would also jeopardize Ohio's pro-life parental involvement law. Again, parental involvement laws pull very well. Most people do think minor girls should at least notify or receive permission from their parents for obtaining an abortion. I think there's also a good chance this constitutional amendment would require Ohio's Medicaid program to cover abortions. That would mean Ohio taxpayers have to start paying for elective abortions. And the one slogan I'm encouraging opponents of this amendment to use is calling it the abortion tax increase. You know, I think that's what we should say from now until Election Day. So, again, yeah. I think we have some very powerful arguments against this. Uh, again, we have our work cut out for us. You know, the other side is motivated, well-funded. Uh, but, again, this is not an impossible fight. And, again, I'm encouraging people in Ohio to, you know, don't despair over what happened yesterday. I'm encouraging pro-lifers elsewhere, support efforts in Ohio, you know, whether it's, you know, with money. I think we're set up. We can do phone banking. You know, I think that will be set up. We can be done remotely. So again, I think this this is winnable and it's an important fight for pro-lifers to win. Well, Michael New, I know that you're going to be fighting. You fight this all the time. It's great talking with you again. Uh, I yeah, great talking to you too. Opportunity to do this here. I do it occasionally on the Drew Mariani show when I fill in on relevant radio as well. Don't forget Michael J. New is an assistant professor of practice at the Catholic University of America. I should say the Catholic University of America. Yeah. That's what supposed to read and a senior associate scholar at the charlotte Lozier institute his twitter handle or is it x handle now I, I i was on vacation two weeks i don't know what they're calling it these i'm days. still calling it twitter yeah i think so too at michael underscore j underscore new um and whether you tweet or post because that's a whole new thing too mm -hmm. uh you've got to be following michael on twitter at michael underscore j underscore new and he's also at the national review online the corner michael thanks so much for being with us today um, thanks for having me much appreciated keep the great work